Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant over at Purdue University. And I am joined today by absolutely nobody because of a last-minute scheduling conflict. But that's okay. I can rock it solo. I can do this. I can talk by myself. Don't worry, we'll have a guest. In fact, not only do we have a guest, we have a great guest. Our guest today, her name is Dr. Sapna Sharma. She's an associate prof in the Department of Biology and the York Research Chair of Global Change Biology at York University. And she's fascinating. I love this. I'll, I'll give you a hint. Little little behind the scenes. Everybody loves behind the scenes. Uh, I'm recording this after the interview. And uh, we had a really nice conversation, I think. She's a fascinating, fascinating. And the work she does spans the scales from like individual fish all the way up to these global questions. And so we're going to talk about that. How do you make that transition? We're going to talk about lake ice and its importance. Um, and uh, she has some really interesting things that I hadn't even thought about uh, when it comes to the importance of lake ice. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation. But first, we got a couple things going on. So let's talk about them. All right. Uh, the first is the lakeys. Don't forget about the lakeys. So uh, this is our end of year award ceremony. And I'm going to stop talking about this soon. Uh, so time is running out. I want you to go to bit.ly.com slash lakeys21. L-I-K-I-E-S 21 um, to nominate some things for the Lakeys, right? We have a lot of categories. Uh, science communicator of the communication of the year, outreach program of the year, coolest thing you've learned listening to teach me about the Great Lakes of the year. Go and nominate some for that. Um, and today I'm going to feature, actually, one of the other ones we have is Great Lakes News Event of the Year. And uh, we've got some interesting things in there. But the one that I want to talk about is that uh, Great Lakes drownings are up this year. And so I put this as a little bit out there, or it's a story from earlier in the year, but uh, it was about the number of drownings. And if you recall, we featured this water safety uh, way back in episode 32. Episodes called What Had Been Safe Is Now Dangerous. And we spoke with Chris Hauser of the University of Windsor about the effects of COVID 19 on beach drownings. And we also spoke with Meg Dotson about water safety. We re aired that one um, around July 4th holiday. Uh, episode 35, teach me about the great lakes.com slash three five. And the reason I mentioned that is, you know, today's a beautiful fall day, but people are still out at the lakes and I, you know, the weather's starting to get a little bit weird. Be safe out there, right? Please recreate in the lakes, but gosh, some of the stuff you see, these things are killer, right? These things are really killer. And actually, if you go listen to that, uh, literally killer, if you listen to that episode with Meg, again, teach me about the great lakes.com slash 35. Uh, she talks about some of what goes into making the great lakes, uh, such a, a kind of surprisingly dangerous place to swim. If you don't know what's going on, if you're careful and thoughtful, great fun. Um, but if you're less careful and less thoughtful, it, it can be bad. So I recommend checking that out. Uh, teach me about the great lakes.com slash three, two for episode 32. What had been safe is now dangerous. And then uh, teach me about the great lakes.com slash 35, 35. Uh, the title there is most weather weenies will probably remember. So this is a uh, really big news, not necessarily good news, but it is big news. Uh, will it win the lakey? You'll have to tune in to de December to find out. And so one other thing I'm going to hector you about, this might be the last time because we're about to record it, is we have our book club coming up, right? We're reading Death and Life, The Great Lakes by Dan Egan. Um, Death and Life in the Great Lakes by Dan Egan. And uh, it's a really fascinating book that I've enjoyed, but we want your feedback. So here's what you can do. Call our hotline, which is 765-496-IISG. Call that hotline and um, answer one of two questions for us. One is, what was something that you read about in that book that was surprising? 
anything surprising in death and life in the Great Lakes. And then the second thing is um, that you may be able to say, is there anything in there that you found to be enraging? We want to know, is there anything in there that enraged you? If so, go ahead and leave a voicemail about that. And either of those, if you leave a good voicemail, we'll go ahead and play it on the air. We're excited about that. So get your voice on the air, people. You can show your mom, show your grandma, show your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your partner. Everybody wants to be on Teach Me About the Great Lakes, and this is your chance to do it. So I I recommend you do it. Anyway, uh, that is enough of that. So I do want to introduce today's guest, who will come on after uh, transitional music. And her name is Dr. Sapna Sharma, and she is the Associate Professor in the Department of Biology in the York Research Chair, Global Change Biology, at York University in Toronto. And we're super lucky to speak with her. And first, let, of course, play the appropriate music, and then we'll start the conversation. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. All right, good. And you're at the York University and a uh, chair in global change biology. Yep. But you got your start in like fish stuff, right? This is what's interesting about your career. As I was looking at it, looked like was your was that your master's thesis? Maybe I was looking at smallmouth bass assemblages. Is is that right? Oh, that was my PhD. Yeah. So. My master's I did on Lake Erie and wildlife populations in Lake Erie, Eastern Lake Erie, and um, and some water quality stuff back then. So were you, did you come into that through like, uh, were you like a fish kid growing up? You know, it seems like there's a couple different types of people who do fish stuff. Those who really loved fish um, and those who are like, are more interested in kind of the ecology and number side of it and are using fish as like a test species or, or whatever as a study species. Which which angle were you coming from with walleye and smallmouth? I'm coming from the number side. So I've always been interested in climate change. Yeah. I remember I even did like, a grade seven science fair project on climate change back when it was like not, not even talked about. You're a climate change hipster. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I love number, numbers and patterns with numbers. So I'm like interested in it from the stats perspective. But I did my uh, PhD and my master's on fish. And my first postdoc, one part of it was on fish and it was going veering towards more statistics. And then I went to the Center for Limnology in Wisconsin for a postdoc and they just got me off fish and hooked onto limnology and get hooked on limnology, not on fish. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then how did you get fish originally? Was that just, that's what was available to, stu- you know, uh, cause like I, my, my master's is in fisheries biology, actually. I'm a social scientist now, but um, I really like field trips. And so uh, there was a master's student position available after I, got, I was an English major, of all things. And um, and so I just took that. And I was like, sure, what the heck? I'll go do fish stuff for a bit, I guess. So was it available or, or how did you get started with that? I guess I was – so the master's project I did was in um, combination with the Ministry of Environment in Ontario. And it was like had a water quality angle to it. I grew up like close to Lake Erie. And in one of the tributaries, the Grand River, I grew up on the Grand River and I thought, okay, well, this seems like it could be useful working like with the Ministry of Environment, working on water quality and fish. It just seemed like like there were other projects I was exploring for a master's, but this seemed like the most useful kind of. Oh, so you had it down from like day one, then even going into your master's that, that you had kind of this trajectory in mind of looking for something to be useful. Well, I come from an immigrant family, so 
<laughs> we don't do things just for fun. <laughs> oh, um, so do you feel like that's been an influence then is, is, is sort of that we don't do things for fun. Well, why not? I guess. What is the, what is the, I meant, like, yeah. that was just a joke. No, but like, I like numbers and I wanted, um, I did want to get a job after I got a, a master. So I really liked behavioral ecology, but I couldn't see myself uh, getting a master's in behavioral ecology and chasing squirrels um, afterwards, <laughs> which is which is what I did during my undergrad. So I was trying to be a bit more pragmatic. And then it, it really was like the statistical ecology end of things that interests me. So then, and then you, you have moved to much larger, so you started with, you know, like small mouth bass assemblages, right, in small scale areas, and you've really moved much bigger scale really quickly, it seems like to me. Um, uh, you know, if you look at your Google Scholar, uh, which I assume contains at least most of what you've done, like it's like small mouth bass, and then within, I don't know, two years, you're on these global size projects already, practically. Uh, uh, so was that, that was an intentional thing by you to try to do bigger work, or, or was it just kind of following a thread? Yeah, so like... Like I said, I started off with walleye in Lake Erie, and um, I remember going through the review process, and they, you know, the comments were typically like, "Oh, this is just one part of one lake. Is this really a widespread issue or whatever?" And I thought, "Okay, well, during my PhD, I thought, okay, I need to get more lakes then if I'm going to do this." And so then I started looking for data, and I found twenty thousand lakes in Canada that I found. Uh, fish community data for water temperatures and um, and all that. And I thought, okay, well, 20,000 lakes seems like a good number. Uh, it's bigger than one. And um, so actually, like, yeah, I was totally doing big data before it was cool. And I did it all by hand. So I didn't do it like I wasn't coding. Right. You weren't like hitting the API for access to this stuff. How do you do 20,000 lakes by hand? What did you have to do? Well, I had to go through like people's drawers and uh, go through their paper sheets to some of them would say, hey, you can come over and go through our drawers and then I would digitize it for them. So it's sort of a win-win. And, you know, other things like I would just manually put it all together. Um, but it worked. It took some time, but it worked. And that was where I started doing some of these, like it was more can. So the small mouth bass work is Canada scale. And, and then from there, you know, it's like, well, why limit myself? <laughs> bigger. Yeah. So are there, so have, have you find as you made this transition thinking about scale, uh, are there trade-offs kind of in the bigger scale work that you do? I mean, obviously there's a lot of data requirements and, and you know, the, the computational uh, requirements are harder, but are there, in terms of like the types of questions you can ask or problems you can address, are there pros and cons or do you see it all as like pros working on these big, you know, nation or even global questions? I think as like, as a field, we need both types of people. We need the global people and the local um, scale people. But for me personally, as a scientist, I prefer the global scale because, as I said, I'm really interested in patterns and drivers of change. And, you know, you can understand in one lake what might happen, but you get a much broader perspective of like how different lakes work. How are they, you know, a lake in Scandinavia and a lake in Wisconsin might be behaving very similarly. And so what are the drivers behind that? So I find that really interesting. Like I like 
knowing that like lakes right next to each other are not behaving in the same way, but they may be behaving similarly to lakes like across the ocean. And I, I find that pretty interesting. I also feel like for me, I like working on different topics. So you probably noticed that about me that I don't just work, you know, I just don't work on fish. I don't even just work on lake ice. Lake ice is my favorite thing that I do, but I don't work on, I work on water temperatures and water quality and ecosystem dynamics and, and fish because I, I think that's just the type of person I am. Like I just need to keep doing different things and trying new things and trying to uncover some of the general patterns. And like some scientists are more, what their strengths are, are thinking about the mechanistic drivers and thinking about the fine scale patterns. And so I feel like for science as a whole to really drive our understanding of how climate change invasive species affects lakes, you need both types of people and I figured, why don't I just do the thing that I, I'm happy doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot, though. It's been a real... So, so yeah, like I said, I I'm come from a social science background now, or, or human dimensions of wildlife is like what my training was in. And there's a lot of small questions that people address there. And that's good. It's important. A lot of times it's management-driven or problem-driven. But, but you know, when I talk to people who do your kind of work, I'm always like, there's got to be a bigger scale approach that we could be taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but making that leap, I just, frankly, I, I can't, I struggle to do it, to think about broad questions that are field relevant to me. So I'm really impressed that you've made that sort of move. Although it sounds like you were kind of planning it from, from the start. It's just something that I find so interesting. The other thing that I get to do with all this large scale work is I get to talk to a lot of different people and learn about their local systems and meet different people who might be contributing data. And that's something I enjoy. Like I'm an extrovert. I like talking to people and I like hearing their stories and their backgrounds and stuff like that. So that's a way for me to incorporate that into my research rather than just being behind the computer or... You see, there's the difference is is almost all social scientists are horrible introverts who have a a deep-seated mistrust and hatred for all people. (laughs) I think a lot of scientists are too. Yeah. But I'm definitely... This this pandemic has been challenging, I think, for extroverts because we're... Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it has. Yeah. So with your kind of work, it's a lot of data analysis. But is there a fieldwork component or is it is largely downloading stuff? Not. I don't want to, I'm sorry. I don't mean like, you know, is it largely stuff you can get data from, from elsewhere, I guess? Yeah. Well, a lot of the data I do get is it's, there's, you know, some people have done fieldwork, right? So I might not have gone to the field with them, but they did. And they might've collected data for their three lakes, or something, but their three lakes become part of my thousands of lakes. I get a lot of data actually just by calling people, emailing. I feel like that's my field work. It's that human connection. You are a social scientist yeah. in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think social scientists would call that field work. And then some of it is like scraping, scraping the internet and papers and stuff like that. So then have you found a slowdown related to the pandemic or has it still been pretty much full speed ahead since you don't have to go out into the field anyway? It is. Well, a lot of my research was done online before anyways, when you're working with people from all sorts of all areas of the world. So that part has just continued. Um, There's been slowdowns, obviously related to the fact that, you know, I have a child who hasn't been in 
school. <laughs> I'm very aware of those slowdowns. Yeah, exactly. So I think anyone who's a who's a parent has experienced slowdowns during this pandemic, but they've also been more fun. Yeah. So is this driven your not the pandemic, but thinking about all the work you do when you're calling people and getting data, I see a couple things out there where you've actually, you know, assembled databases that are available to to other researchers now, right? It's is that all related to that same interest in just asking big questions and, and maybe even the struggle that you had in graduate school to find stuff. Did that make you want to then put more things out there for other scientists or, or what led to that? Yeah, I think it's like important for so many different reasons to make it available because for me, like, I feel like as a field, as a someone who studies climate change and climate change impacts, we, we really need to benefit from all sorts of different people and perspectives and experiences tackling these questions if we're going to actually get to an answer for society on how to mitigate, like, these climate change impacts. So, um, so for me, it's important to get data out there because that means more people will be thinking about it in different ways we can as a field we will make make some improvements and secondly for me it's also an important equity issue because you know if you're not part of that boys club you may not have access to data and you do not may you do not have access to the same amounts of data and uh, so from an equity perspective, I think releasing data open access makes it available to anyone. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms. We talk about that a lot. So we we, all, we fund some research. At, I, don't know, you, I don't know if you know much about Sea Grant programs. You're in Wisconsin, but, but you're up in Toronto where we don't have them, of course. So part of what we do is we fund research. We have uh, uh, research competitions. And everything has to be matched 50%, you know, uh, 50 cents on a dollar. That's part of our legislation, our federal legislation. That, that and, and we talk a lot about how that's an equity issue also, in that the people who are most likely to have the ability to match that are going to be the people at the, you know, the major research universities um, and who are going to be disproportionately look like a cleaner cut version of me, essentially, right? And, and uh, so now we talk about, I haven't thought about data that way. Do you find within your field, so in my field, making data available is, is rare. Um, and I think, I hadn't thought about the equity, but I think it's an issue in terms of scientific integrity and, and all sorts of other things. In your field, is it more common to make that stuff available or are you kind of a trailblazer there in the same way you're a trailblazer on climate change and, and big data and stuff like that? Um, it's, it's not common, but there is a movement towards it. I think in the U.S., U.S. has been the gold standard on making data available. In Canada, we are terrible. So actually, very few of my projects actually focus on Canadian lakes because their open access data and data sharing is not as easy here as it is in the U.S. And so I feel like it's important to lead by example. Um, and also, you know, there has been here a lot of people say, well, I can't share my data because I was going to write a paper on it. And now somebody else is going to write this paper on it. But I think being in Wisconsin at the Center for Limnology, which hosts the North Temperate Lakes um, LTR, they really stress the importance of sharing data as soon as it's available. Because, you know, if you're going to be working on it, hopefully you're going to be collaborating with others who want to learn more about how what this data mean. And regardless you're you're still making a contribution to the ecological like our society. So 
Um, for me, I, I don't really buy that argument. It seems easy, right? Right to say that that's like a nice, easy default position or, or a lot of times, you know, oh, IRB won't allow it. And IRB will allow it usually. You just have to be thoughtful about it. So yeah, no, I hear you on that. So let's talk a little bit more in, in more specifics about your research. So you, you say that you've done like a lot of work on uh, lake ice is what you're passionate about, right? And and we've had a conversation or two about lake ice before, but I don't know a ton about it. I'm from the South. We don't, you know, the only ice we got is in the refrigerator. So lake ice, this comes to the Great Lakes during the winter, right? The colds of winter, they turn the lakes partially. I don't think none of them get totally encased in ice, but but a lot of ice, right? And um, and, and that's changing. So why is, is that that's an important part of the cycle is my understanding. Is that correct? And if so, what, what's important about that? Yeah. So lake ice is so important for so many reasons. So I can start with ecologically why lake ice is important. So lake ice, you can kind of think about it as a lid on the lake in winter. So it prevents um, evaporation, higher evaporation rates. So in years when lakes don't have, have ice, those lakes will have higher evaporation and less fresh water, which is really important to all of us since we need fresh water to survive. The other thing it does is um, in years when you don't have lake ice or if lake ice breaks up earlier in the spring, you end up getting warmer water temperatures in the lake, earlier onset of thermal stratification, warmer water temperatures in the summer, and then higher uh, primary production and a higher likelihood of algal blooms, some of which might be toxic. And so ecologically, ice is just so important in governing what happens in the winter, but also what happens in the spring and following summer. Culturally, um, so you're from the South, so it's not as big of a deal, but I'm in Toronto and Culturally, it's super, ice is super important for us. So for example, ice hockey, ice skating, recreation, ice fishing. Uh, We have multi, multi multi-million, billion dollar industries that are revolve around ice recreation. We also have winter ice roads. So our um, northern communities, particularly indigenous communities, don't have, they don't have roads access to their communities. Uh, And so they need winter ice roads um, to actually get access to food and resources and and social connections. Culturally, it's also important for some religions. So my favorite lake to study is Lake Suwa in Japan. And its ice record goes back to 1443. And it was uh, started and continues to be maintained by Shinto priests. So for them, it's part of their local tradition to, as a community, to observe what's happening with, uh, with Lake Ice. So it's, it's a big part of the social fabric of northern countries. And that's why we can get data that go back so far, because it's, it's been an important component for life. Hold on, I have 10 things to ask about this. So that's amazing. So so I hadn't thought about the cultural importance. I mean, it's totally true. My knowledge of ice fishing extends to one episode of Letterkenny and one episode of the um, Anthony Bourdain show where he goes with these dudes who are cooking really amazing food somewhere on, uh, uh, in their little shack while ice fishing. But uh, I hadn't thought about this cultural importance in addition to the ecological importance. That's that's just, it's it's mind-blowing to think about. And so with, but what you're talking about really is, is incorporating traditional ecological knowledge knowledge then, right? Uh, into your big data projects. So let's ask about that. And then we're going to go back to Lake Ice. Is that like a challenge or how do, how do you do that exactly? 
So uh, one, I didn't think about that as a traditional ecological knowledge, but that's uh, that's totally true. Um, and two, how do I do that? I it's again by calling. It's a social capital, right? And uh, just calling and emailing each winter to say, "Hey, when did your lake freeze? Did your lake freeze um, this year? And what date?" And that's just how how I get data. So. I kind of trivialize it by saying, okay, I called somebody, but really it's a lot of effort when you do this for hundreds to thousands of lakes to actually keep track of, of what, what is going on with the ice. Um, and then we do make that available open access. So we just put up the, the ice record till what we have now for anybody to use for like over 500 lakes. And and so you found that the ice extents are, it can change any given year, but basically they're reducing, like is the big picture, right? Because of climate change, is that is that the case? Yeah, so what we're finding is that uh, in the fall, winter, ice is forming later. Uh, it's breaking up earlier in the spring. And then in some years, actually, we're seeing lakes that aren't freezing at all. And the likelihood of that happening is is actually increasing quite rapidly. And so overall, we're experiencing shorter ice duration or no no ice duration. It's pretty cool. I had a paper accepted this week where um, where we updated the trends in ice loss from what John Magnuson did at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2000. And adding 25 years worth of more data is just mind-blowing because we're seeing uh, the trends in ice loss about six times faster in the last 25 years so in terms of shorter ice duration um and for example lake superior working you're talking about the great Lakes. so we've been um following the ice records from bayfield bay and lake superior since 1867 since that time period there's been over two months less ice cover lake superior which is you know in a in a pretty cold place since 1997 has not frozen four times wow so like yeah we're seeing really really rapid changes uh of warming um and we're seeing this in other large deep lakes as well or as lakes in the southern part so i mean four times that's that's uh like 20 percent really almost 20 percent of the time since 97 that it doesn't freeze wow is that right? Did I do that math? Yeah. Close enough. Um, <laughs> that's a, wow, that's that's something else. So, and so the effects of this, so then I can surmise is that all those things we're talking about that are the value of lake ice, uh, uh, those are affected in different ways, right? Um, both the ecological impacts, the uh, uh, social well-being impacts in terms of uh, changes in weather, but not at least cultural things too, which I, I hadn't thought about. And we're look, starting to look at like economic impacts too. So for example, like an ice fishing tournament in Minnesota will bring in 800,000 US dollars to a small community in a weekend, which uh, those tournaments are increasingly being canceled with warmer winds. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, geez, that's horrible. And then, but a lot of this is baked in at this point. I mean, so, you know, when you talk about climate change, right? Uh, Climate change, if it's, it's never be solved, but, but like how much of this is baked in and it's just the way it is or how much of the, you know, what option, well, not options, but how bad is it going to get and what can we do to, and what can we still stop from happening, I guess, would be kind of a way to think about it. Yeah. So we've been doing a lot of forecasts into the future of how climate change may affect ice in the, in the future. And if we, you know, we continue on a terrible path, 
of increased greenhouse gas emissions, we could see about 5,700 lakes permanently lose ice cover. And so permanently losing ice cover has huge, huge consequences on like the freshwater supply and um, the water quality of the lakes. If we mitigate greenhouse gas emissions um, by 2030s, we estimate only 179 lakes. Ice, because ice is so sensitive to air temperatures and air temperatures are so sensitive to greenhouse gas emissions. And that's what, why ice is so awesome to work with because it integrates the weather and climate so well. It's clear you need to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions to, to preserve ice cover, which will consequently preserve our freshwater supply. And so that you know, those are those are big big scale things. So those are things that have to do with you know voting for the right people. Um, and I, of course, as a public employee, will not tell you how to vote, um, nor should I, in fairness. But but right, there are choices you can make, right, um, in terms of if that's important to you, who to uh, and getting involved in the democratic process. Getting involved in the democratic process. Yep. Yeah. Getting involved. Period. Uh, you know, voting with your dollars counts a lot too. Yeah. Oh, well, that is uh, scary, but it's fascinating work um, that you you're, you're talking about here. And uh, I noticed actually looking at, yeah, we've spoken with one of your co-authors before, um, Maria Dietrich, I believe is her name, about uh, this paper you did, uh, Scientists Warning for Humanity, looking at, you know, um, uh, what what all these big lakes can tell us uh, about our condition. So if you had to say, like, your work kind of in sum, what is like the big theme of your work lately in terms of what it's telling us about, you know, lakes in general, the Great Lakes specific, whatever you think? That's a good question. I would say what I've learned is that we're at a critical tipping point right now um, where our ecosystems are changing. They're changing pretty rapidly and the consequences of which are much more, um, much more extreme than just thinking about uh, ice in general. It's like freshwater quantity, water quality supply, cultural changes. We actually even documented number of drownings of people through ice. Um, so human health. And we have a lot of a lot of data to support the fact this is a great thing about working on large scales and working on on different topics. Um, because you can get like a, an overview, right? Like, we know that all of these, these factors are changing. And they're changing rapidly, especially within the last quarter century. And we are at this tipping point right now where we have to sort of start making tough decisions as a society. Like, where are we going to go in the next five to 10 years? Are we going to continue ourselves on this trajectory or and, you know, deal with the ramifications, which are going to be way more expensive than just dealing with mitigating climate change, um, both economically, but in terms of our ecosystem health? our stewardship of our land, of human life? Uh, or are we going to say, we're going to do something about this? This is important. And I, and I think that's sort of what all my research is sort of culminating to show is that we're changing rapidly and we're changing much faster than what we would have predicted even 10 years ago. And so it's it's time to do something about it. Well, this is really interesting stuff, and your research is is really fascinating, and and a lot of it is very accessible, I think, too, to non, uh, you know. So I, I recommend people go and, and read it. But that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. Uh, the reason we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is ask you two questions, and the first one of the is this: If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? 
I would choose the Great Donut for breakfast. Great Donut. Team Donut. I love dessert. And two, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So you might as well start your day with on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> a sugar high note. Yeah, uh, that's that's wonderful. So when I go to Toronto, because um, I want to visit the biggest city in the Great Lakes, where should I go to get a really great donut? Well, in Canada, we have Tim Hortons. So that's like the accessible donut. But we have this cool street called Queen Street. And there's a, a bunch of, you know, smaller establishments. Um, and, and King Street, we have great food actually in Toronto, um, and great bakeries, and just a lot of diversity in food. So I guess I would choose Glory Hole Donuts as the as the place to go. It's like a little place uh, on Queen Street, but if uh, if not, Tim Hortons would. No, no, Glory Hole Donuts is great. I I will put a link in the show notes, listeners, so that you don't have to Google Glory Hole, or if you do, Google it with donuts. Uh, make sure to include the donuts. They also. Have- Cronuts for a while. Cronuts. Yeah, I've not done the cronut. Yeah. yeah. Have you no, done a cronut? Is a cronut? Is a cronut? No, yeah. I have not had it. It seems like there's got to be like a border that you do not cross. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> a man has to have a code. Okay, <laughs> great. And the second question is this. So so we have like a Great Lakes oriented audience. Now, you know, we have people all over the world, but we're focused on the on the Great Lakes. And so uh, we like to share our special places in the Great Lakes with our audience. Is there one that you have that's a special place? And if so, what makes it special? For me, it's Toronto. So, um, and Toronto's on Lake Ontario. And uh, I actually grew up in a small town called Brantford, Ontario, uh, which is on the Grand River that goes into Lake Erie. It's, a, it's the home of Wayne Gretzky. That's what we're we're known for, um, bringing back the relevance to ice hockey. There you go. Toronto for me was like always like the fun place to go. I've lived in many different places because of my education and research, but. For me, this is home and it's such an awesome city. There are so many neighborhoods. It's such a big city, but it's safe. There's lots of little neighborhoods and uh, and lots of amazing food because Toronto is so diverse. We have like the most number of people from a specific country coming to Toronto and creating neighborhoods and opening restaurants and having festivals and like, you know, celebrating and embracing diversity is an important part of the city. And of course, I love the Toronto Raptors, so I know. Only a couple of years removed from a championship, too. So there you go. I know. It was amazing. It was amazing. I've been going to their game since day one. Have you? Look at this. Well, you've sold me on Toronto. Absolutely. And I'll go to I'll go to Queen Street. I'll go to King Street. Uh, <laughs> I'll have donuts. It's all good. It's all good. I can ice fish. <laughs> yep. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we uh, buzz off? Or are we good? No, I think we're good. I guess the only thing I would have wanted to talk about was hearing more about you. But well, I, <laughs> um, I, I love to talk about me. No, this is interesting. Um, this is this is really good work that you do. And yeah, moving to those bigger questions—that's the thing that I—that's like my weakness as a researcher. You know, I'm an administrator largely, but I do some research too. I have a research assistant prof position, and I've done some climate work. Like I was part of—I've uh, done some of that climate consensus stuff. You know, those big groups. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so I wasn't part of the original paper, but they did a follow-up paper, like a consensus of consensus type paper. And so I had done some work looking at scientists' belief in climate change. Um, turns out they do. Uh, even yeah. we were wondering if like physicists and chemists did, you know, like, or maybe they're like, well, no, I'm a physicist. I know you can't model that. So climate, but no, they all believed in climate change too. Oh, we have two climate change 
deniers at my university in science. One is in physics and one is in chemistry. Yeah. Well, I think it might be more likely there, but actually, actually the field that had the fewest percentage of people. So we surveyed scientists basically at every department across the big 10, which was 12 universities at the time. And um, uh, natural resources had the, the smallest or the, the largest percentage was still very small uh, of people who didn't believe that climate change was happening. And I don't remember, it's been a couple of years, but it was about, even there, it was in the high 80s, you know, uh, people who believed in climate oh, change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. we found signal, like, like we didn't have enough data to really show this, but we found signal that a lot of, I mean, the even among scientists, it tends to be like cultural values that drives it. Um, you know, people who are more sort of hierarchical and more sort of individualistic uh, are more likely to not, believe in climate change um and people who are more egalitarian and communitarian are are are, are more likely to be concerned about and, and believe in climate change even among scientists which i thought was interesting so it's like well yeah that's pretty interesting yeah yeah it's interesting how much values can influence what we do i guess even even among you know supposedly rational scientists <laughs> well that it's those values sort of permeate well, this is uh, really interesting stuff, and I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Where can people go if they want to find out more about uh, you and your work? Uh, you can go to my lab website, which is sharmalab.wordpress.com. sharmalab.wordpress.com. And I will put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash... Oh my goodness, which episode is this? Uh, I think it's 43. So episode... Yes. No, 42. Excuse me. Slash 42, because this is episode 42. Well, Dr. Sapna Sharma, Associate Professor, Department of Biology, the York Research Chair of Global Change Biology at York University. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Uh, Thanks for having me. It was fun. Well, that was a really great conversation. I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, She is a clever woman. And uh, I think it's when you look at the breadth of what she's done and how easily she scaled up from, you know, individual fish populations to uh, lake wide assemblages to um, all the way to, you know, really working on global issues related to climate and whatever. It's very impressive, the person who can do that. And then on top of that, uh, uh, the way that she's a real leader in terms of thinking about equity and uh, diversity and also thinking about making public data available to the public. Uh, Really impressive. So I am super glad to have been able to speak with her. Um, so again, I would like y'all to take a minute. I haven't asked this for a while. So if you, if you have a minute, why don't you give us a rating or review? Uh, you can just go, um, in your podcast app or whatever, just give us a, uh, five-star review. And, um, if you have already done that, thank you for that. Uh, give us another one. Who cares? And if you don't want to do that, then maybe you can, um, subscribe if you haven't, or ask a friend to subscribe, uh, cause we do love our listeners. And then the other thing I want to remind you about is um, up next is the uh, very soon rather is our book club. So if you have a thought on Dan Egan's death and life in the Great Lakes, call and leave it on the hotline. We'll play it on the show probably at 765-496-IISG. That I believe is 4474. And um, answer one of these two questions. First of all, what was the most uh, surprising thing in death and life in the Great Lakes to you? Or secondly, if you instead would like to tell us um, what is the most infuriating thing in death and life in the Great Lakes. You want to hear what, what surprised you or what infuriated you? Leave that on our hotline at 765-496-IISG and we might play it on the show. And with that, uh, I will do the thing and then we'll do the thing. Let's see. Here we go. 
Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work that we do at iicgrant.org or at ILINC Grant on Facebook, Twitter, or other social media, such as Instagram, or as I call it, Insta. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Reenie Miles. Ethan Chitty, he is our associate producer and our fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the amazing, awesome Quinn Rose, and you should check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. Hey, do you have a question? Maybe a comment about the show? Why don't you send us an email? Teach me about the Great Lakes at Hotmail. Nope, not at Hotmail. What is this, 1998? Teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com. You can leave us a message on the aforementioned hotline at 765-496-IISG for Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes if you want. And, uh... Do it. Why not? It's fun. See the people we follow, too. We follow pretty much every guest who has a Twitter we follow. So now I'm learning as much from that as I do from doing the show, actually. So go ahead. Follow us on Twitter. It won't hurt. I promise. Anyway, for Stuart Carlton, I am Stuart Carlton. Thanks for listening, and keep grading those lakes. Beep, 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 beep.